The entire decade between 1991 and 2001 was like a roller coaster for WCW, rising from nothing to becoming the number one wrestling company in the world, and then 1999 happened. WCW producer Eric Bischoff was burned out after years of tirelessly working to make the company the number one wrestling product. The WWF had worked hard to change their own direction and become red hot once again, and by 1999 they'd regained the undisputed title of number one sports entertainment company in the world. Lead writer Vince Russo was praised for helping the WWF achieve that new direction with his edgy storylines. At the time, many people believed Russo to be the lead architect of the WWF's huge success in the late 90s. When Russo became disgruntled with his pay and his working conditions in the WWF, he signed with WCW. With Eric Bischoff out the door, WCW bosses hoped that Russo would be the man to turn around Ted Turner's wrestling division going into the new millennium and beyond. Vince Russo's terrible ideas accelerated the downward spiral that WCW was in, and by October of 2000, he was gone after causing irreparable damage to the company. WCW's on-screen product did improve after Vince Russo's departure. For the first time in a long time, some of the show actually made sense, and it was really fun to watch. Let us first take a look at some of the things that were still very wrong with the company during this time period because it was by no means perfect. The storylines were still absolutely all over the place, particularly at the main event level. Ric Flair was introduced as the CEO of WCW in October 2000, making him the on-screen decision maker. It could have been an ideal role for Flair, if he was looking to wind down his in-ring career. It could have been a really good way to keep one of WCW's genuine legends on screen and utilise his famous promo skills. It was an idea that WWE expanded on to great effort in 2002 when he was introduced as the storyline co-owner of the company. However, this earlier role in WCW made very little sense the storylines that he was imparting to the fans were mostly nonsensical, just like they'd been for the entire year and a half before. The January pay-per-view was known as Sin, and the main event was announced as a four-corners match for the WCW Championship between champion Scott Steiner, Jeff Jarrett, Sid Vicious, and a mystery opponent. The mystery man ended up being Road Warrior Animal. Now, all respect to Animal for his legacy in the business, but fans were rightly hoping for someone a bit more impressive in their main event. The way the fourth man in this match had been hyped, you would have been forgiven for expecting Jesus Christ himself to walk down the aisle. The main event of Sin ended up only being memorable for one thing, and that was the horrific injury caused to Sid's leg when he jumped off the rope. Easily one of the most harrowing moments ever aired on a wrestling pay-per-view. One of the huge positives around WCW's main event in 2001 was the dominance of Scott Steiner as World Heavyweight Champion. Steiner was a super effective heel who cut vitriolic, out-of-control promos and was totally believable as the company's top heel. This push should have happened in the middle of 1999, not at the end of the year 2000. He managed to drag Goldberg to his best match ever, 
at the Fall Brawl pay-per-view in September and would defeat Booker T for the championship at Mayhem in November. Unfortunately, Steiner wouldn't be able to escape the clutches of terrible main event booking during his reign as champion. Take the main event of Super Brawl Revenge, for example. It was a loser-leaves-town match between Scott Steiner and Kevin Nash. It appeared that Nash had won the title in just 17 seconds after hitting Steiner with the belt. However, Flair then announced that the match was now a 2 out of 3 falls match. Then DDP appeared to try and help Nash, but he was attacked by Lex Luger and Buff Bagwell. Flair then decided that it would be a false count anywhere match. It was an absolute mess of a pay-per-view main event that typified WCW's main events at the time. Now, I'm a fan of Kevin Nash, but having him around the main event scene at this time was just a detriment. WCW had finally gotten over its reliance on the NWO, and yet Nash was still taking a place up in the main event. The NWO hadn't been seen since April 2000, and the company was better off without them. Again, it was another case of too little too late. The NWO should have been canned in early 1999. Another case of too little too late was the push for fresh talent after years of WCW's unbreakable glass ceiling. The very same glass ceiling that caused the likes of Chris Jericho, Eddie Guerrero and so many others to jump ship to the WWF. Now, at the end of WCW's life, the glass ceiling had been shattered. Hulk Hogan was no longer in the company and that helped massively. He'd made his last ever WCW appearance at Bash at the Beach in July 2000 and good riddance. It wasn't just Hogan's spot on the card, but also his influence over the booking in WCW that helped maintain that glass ceiling for so long. For the first time in a very long time, homegrown talent emerged in the form of the Natural Born Thrillers, a group of wrestlers, many of whom had graduated from WCW's power plant. The group consisted of Mike Sanders, Chuck Palumbo, Sean O'Hare, Sean Stasiak, Reno, Mark Jindrak and Johnny the Ball. It was a promising sign when Kevin Nash was made their on-screen coach, the veteran wrestler taking care of the stars of tomorrow. It didn't last five minutes, obviously, but the intention was there. By 2001, Chuck Palumbo and Sean O'Hare had retained the natural-born thriller's name as a tag team and were being pushed as the main duo in the company. Both men were hugely talented and both being tipped as the future of the business. To this day, O'Hare is seen as one of wrestling's missed opportunities and seeing the 6 foot 6 inch heavyweight hit the swanton bomb from the top rope, it's easy to see why. I will always give Vince Russo credit where it's due. I think Russo had some good ideas about the wrestling business that really made sense, however he just executed them completely wrong. A good example of this rule in action was Mike Awesome. Russo believed in pushing fresh talent and that everyone on the roster should have a character and something to do on the show. Mike Awesome was certainly fresh and he was certainly given something to do when he signed with WCW in 2000. Unfortunately, the thing that Russo gave him to do was to become the fat chick thriller and that 70s guy. He was given two back-to-back -back gimmicks that would make anyone think twice about joining the wrestling business. On a rare occasion, 
Russo managed to tick the box for both of those points. He pushed somebody fresh and talented and gave him something to do on the roster, and I'm talking about Lance Storm, giving him the US Championship, the Cruiserweight Championship, and the Hardcore Championship. By 2001, Storm was leading his own faction called Team Canada, and in those dying days of WCW, Mike Awesome also regained some respect for himself by shedding the ridiculous gimmicks and teaming up with Storm as part of the group. One of the many things that Russo had got totally wrong during his reign of error was the cruiserweight division. From his arrival at the end of 1999 right through to his departure a year later, the cruiserweights were treated incredibly badly by Russo. With him gone, WCW started to try and get the division back to its former glory. While it never got back to the good old days of Eddie Guerrero versus Rey Mysterio in 1997, the Cruiserweights in 2001 definitely felt like they were becoming a real attraction again. Cruiserweight mainstays like Billy Kidman, Chavo Guerrero and Rey Mysterio were still there and part of the mix, but the ones to watch were the up-and-coming youngsters like Kaz Hayashi, Shane Helms and Evan Courageous. The ladder match at Starcade in December 2000 is one of the best cruiserweight contests in WCW history and well worth checking out if you've never seen it before. That quality carried on into 2001 with WCW introducing the Cruiserweight Tag Team Championships. A thrilling tournament at the Greed pay-per-view in March saw the final match come down to Elix Skipper and Kid Romeo who defeated Kidman and Mysterio for the brand new titles. Greed ended up being the final WCW pay-per-view on March the 18th 2001 and the show was actually mostly decent from top to bottom. The main event saw Scott Steiner defeat DDP to retain the championship. It would be just a week later on March the 26th when the WWF announced that they had purchased WCW. That Monday would be the final episode of Monday Nitro and for me it felt like a fitting end. The WWF did a decent job of booking the last show and setting up the storyline going forward involving the invasion from Shane McMahon on the show, US champion Booker T won the world championship from Scott Steiner and it was nice to see the babyface lifting the title on the final episode of Nitro. What felt really emotional on this show was Ric Flair versus Sting. If any rivalry personified WCW, it was the decade-long feud between these two men and it was great to see them tear it up one last time. Sting picked up the win after Flair tapped to the Scorpion Deathlock. As the men hugged and shook hands, it really sank in that this was the end of an era. The only brand that would ever come close to putting the WWF out of business was no more, and the wrestling world was worse off without it. At least those final few months in 2001 contained a glimmer of hope for Ted Turner's wrestling division, and God knows the end could have been a lot worse than it was.